So we have until 9.30, and the meeting in nature will be fellowship with question and response rather than question and answer. Uh, Some were not here before. What I mean by this is if a question is concerning truth and the truth is revealed and defined, and we can give an answer. But questions related to our human life, married life, family life, Christian life, church life, that are experiential matters, practical matters. Really, I don't believe anyone can say I have the answers. Only God does. And so we can try in a proper spirit to offer fellowship. And and almost all the questions, after a very brief word in addition to this, that they can only have a response. Uh, and then you just consider if that makes sense to you, if you can agree with that, if you say, no, this is from another universe, from another culture, then just let it go. It's not going to hurt my feelings. And I'm not going to be strongly insisting on anything. So just present it as fellowship. So just for about five minutes now. uh, When it comes to family matters or marriage, I'm very exercised to stay within the limits of the principles revealed in the scriptures and what has been presented to us through our brother's ministry. Uh, to go beyond that is to get in the realm of personal views or ethics or this or that. And I want to avoid that. But there are certain governing principles in the word and presented by the ministry and we should be aware of them and consider them. So children must be raised under the law of God and according to the culture in which they were born. Before they can be God-men, they have to be humans. And they have to grow and develop as all human beings do. Now, I don't think, I doubt if anyone here is making this kind of mistake. But I visited a certain place and stayed with a family because of a major feast that was there. And I learned that their little children, six or seven years old, they were teaching them to have a God-man living and to have vital companions and be in vital groups. This is really abnormal. The children need to be raised under the law of God because according to the Galatians, the law brings us to Christ for salvation. And that will shape their conscience 
and their character. So we raise them under the commandments and under the other principles in the word. And then we're born into a certain cultural situation. We have to live in that. You have a particular educational system here, and you have to raise your children within that. You know, unless you want to migrate to a strange place like California, and then there'll be some, a somewhat different situation. Then, once they are saved, truly saved, and begin to know they have a spirit and to know how to contact the Lord, then we gradually lead them away from the law and away from culture to Christ living in us. And then some of the basic responsibilities we all have, of course, is to raise these human beings, to help develop their person, their character, their conscience, to provide for their education, to train them in morality and ethics, to give them the gospel. So all these foundational matters are the responsibility of parents. And when, when they're real little, they can't make very many choices, though they need to learn how to exercise their will. The little girl, would you like to wear this dress today or that? Do you have a choice between these two? It's good that they learn to exercise their will. But when they're 17, they need more freedom in this. And eventually, you can't control them. And we need to realize something. Uh, because if we go against this, we are unintentionally replacing God. We cannot determine either the human or spiritual future of our children. We can't do that. It's not our portion. They were created by God for his will. He made them in a certain way with certain characteristics and abilities. Surely he has something in his heart for them. And we should not try to replace God and say, you must do this or you must do that. And I've been involved with situations in fellowship with here a brother's 25 brother in his 30s eventually I have to ask him at what age can you make an important decision yourself you still have the thought I have to do what my parents tell me to do well you're not a little boy you're a grown man. And here's an extreme example, but it actually happened. Uh, one brother, truly given to the Lord and de developing in, in a wonderful way as a man, as a God-man, was courting this sister who matched him in this way. 
And his parents said, you, you may not marry her. You must marry someone from our country and who is a doctor like you. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to take this sister out for coffee and say, my mommy and daddy said I have to marry a doctor born in this country? It just shows that we need to recognize the limit. doesn't mean we don't guide them. We don't direct them. We don't advise them. We don't encourage them. That's normal. But we cannot replace God by determining their human future. They're not robots. And they may make decisions that will break your heart. Just trouble you. Like in Luke 15, the younger son said, I want my share of the inheritance, and then I'm gone. The father didn't say, no way. You're not getting this. I know you're going to waste it. This is what the son wanted. Okay. But then the father never stopped waiting and watching for him to come back. And then the same with the spiritual future. There's one very experienced. Now he's very experienced. Co-worker and elder in the church. With the daughter and two sons. And he pressed them. And they were all teenagers, like 13, 14. Promise me you will go to the full-time training. You must go. And so to please their dad and to get him to stop, they said, okay, dad, okay, we'll go. So the oldest was the daughter, and she came, very dear sister. But she holds the record for the shortest time in the full-time training in Anaheim. She just couldn't stop smoking. She just couldn't do this. A very precious sister, but she was just not trainable. And so in a positive way, we had to say, you better just go on with your life. The other, the two sons never came. And so, yes, we should encourage them, point them, advise them, pray for them, shepherd them, supply them. But we have to know when our responsibility ends. Now we'll come to questions with responses. And there's one matter. This will perhaps be the third question I respond to. It's on hand phones. There are three or four questions on hand phones. And probably, um, on my part, I'll be honest and faithful but also quite softly spoken because it might shock you, it might surprise you. And uh, I don't want you to be stumbled. You just may hear a different view and then you just consider it or you just say, forget about it. That's not in our universe at all. Okay, then forget about it. 
I'm faithful to tell you what I felt, and you're honest to continue what you should do. Now I say the Lord bless you. Okay, how should we prioritize our time between our physical children and our spiritual children? Then the background. Both of us are working parents and find it difficult to spend adequate time with our spiritual children while raising our young child. But without question, much, much more time must be devoted to your physical children. That's, that's all day. That's day and night. If you're the mother, your work never ends, okay? It never ends. And so there's no shame in that. This is a responsibility given to you from God. And the mother of my children, she went to be with the Lord some years ago. She considered being a mother, a a ministry to the Lord. And so surely... the priority of time is with your human children. And then you just consider you've got a full schedule. We all do. This is normal. Maybe one or two hours a week you can devote some time to your spiritual children. You just arrange something where you can do it. If the kids are okay and they're healthy, you know what happens, one gets sick, then the other, this and that, it can throw things off. And then maybe every now and then you have one of these spiritual children over to your house. If a meal is too complicated, you just have some tea. But you don't have to feel guilty for not devoting a large amount of time to spiritual children. Your first responsibility is in the human realm. And there's just no shame. This is an honor. This is a privilege. Okay, another question. Can I watch a movie cartoon with my children? Will this cause them to have the wrong notion that watching a movie is all right? Okay, I'm just giving you a response. Okay, you're watching a cartoon with your children. My feeling, the impression that it will give to your child is that mothers take time to watch cartoons with their children. It's not saying, my mother's laying a foundation for me to watch all kinds of horrible things on a movie. If they find you doing that, then that is what's going to trouble them. But I feel there is no danger in this uh, because especially you're watching a cartoon. You're with your daughter or your son, but inwardly be one with the Lord. And you're cherishing your child to be with them is precious. And so I don't know too much difference between when I was a dad reading Curious George you know, what did he get? Curious George gets an iPad. Okay, 50 years ago, Curious George does this. Or watching a cartoon with Curious George in his iPad. I think you can be at peace about this. All right. Should we encourage our young people towards certain fields of studies? 
enhance their future job fields and discourage them from certain ones? If so, what are they, the ones you should discourage? Also, what if they have no talent, inclination, and interest in science, math, and other kosher fields, but their talents are in performing arts, for example, singing, acting, or e-sports? E-sports, I guess these are something electronic, something online, right? Some kind of games. How do you feel about our young people working as singers, actors, professional gamers, or sports stars, thus following their, quote, God-given talents in these fields? Now, from the little that I understand about the educational system, decisions might have to be made. They're quite young, 10 or 12 years old, and they take some tests or whatever, This is what I feel, and this is what I learned with my daughter and sons. This is what I observed regarding my grandchildren and their parents. We need to recognize that God created us in certain ways. And they don't always match our concept of what is the right kind of job they should have when they're adults but we'll give them a secure income, whatever. And then in the, the system, even some of the, the tests for universities, they may stress math or other things. We need to seek the Lord. I learned this with my first son. My daughter's the oldest. And when it dawned on me, he's very different from his sister academically, with his interests. He's very different. If we direct him the same way we directed his daughter, we're really going to have a major problem. And we were desperate before the Lord to know him, to understand him. And so, okay, if they are, have capacity for math and science, that's fine. But what if they don't? What if they're just average? They don't get A pluses in geometry. Even if you get a tutor and send them to a special school, they still can't pull it off. But um, they're artistic. They like to write poetry. They're interested in mechanical things. Uh, Whatever. We have to be careful not to try to force them to go against their being. And here's a situation. This is extreme, but it happened. There was a man who was a physician, very successful. And his son was a university student. And the father put great pressure on him you must be a doctor. You must go to medical school. But then his son had a very good teacher when it came to literature and understanding great literature. He wanted to go in this direction. 
and his father was angered by it. And he demanded that he go to medical school. So the son took a certain way to solve the problem. And the way was suicide. Because he wasn't free to live according to his own being. Well, that's, we're not going to see that extreme among us. But just the thought, you have to go in this direction. For instance, I kind of banter this just with students with their majors. I don't understand someone studying accounting. I ask them, do you really like that? You, You actually enjoy it? If I were forced to do that, I think I'd have a breakdown. Or you're a math major. Oh, you go to these way, way high math. Um, If I had to do that, maybe I would pass with a C-plus average, but I wouldn't be very happy. Now, okay, then they say, what about if their talents are with music, this and that. All right. No, I wouldn't encourage any young person to be a singer. You're, you're the lead singer with this, along with this rock band, or you're a drummer, and so you should form this kind of band and do this professionally. Or uh, you're an actor, so why don't you go to Hollywood and try to get involved there. Rather, the underlying principle is any job we take by its nature should be a healthy and proper human activity, whatever it is. There are certain lines of work that we just shouldn't do. In themselves, They are indecent, they're improper, or at least they're worldly. But if this one has music ability, it should be trained. Maybe it'll be a music teacher, maybe it'll be something related to music. But no, even if you're in high school and you're seeing a solo and a certain concert, okay. But don't take the way of the world. Now, I got it if I could use this word, a jolt, a surprise. Way back in 1982, I spent a few days with some others in a major city in New York and meeting some brothers I didn't know. And they were all sharing what they're doing. This one is studying this. He's studying that and what their job is. And one said, this was in New York, he said, uh, I'm an actor. I said, okay. Then I found out, I happened to see him about a year later in a television commercial. And so this brother was undefiled by it. I don't know how long he stayed in it. But I wouldn't say it's okay for you to want to be a professional gamer or a sports star. This is to see glory in the world. Please develop your God-given ability in a way that's healthy, that can earn you a living, 
but is proper for the church life. It doesn't cause you to to, uh, bargain with the world. And those of us that are serving with the young people, we have to realize this is mainly a parent's responsibility. If they open to us and they would like to go in that direction, we should encourage them, but we have to be careful not to be too much. But I feel definitely that we need to develop, as much as our situation allows, our God-created ability. So what would happen? Let me just ask as an illustration. See, back in the 1960s, when we came into the recovery, we were all young young men. And many of us had a job. I don't think we'll see much now. We were high school teachers. What would you say if a young person says, I want to teach German and French in high school? And you're not a sister, you're a brother. What would your reaction be? You're not going to earn enough money. Is that what it would be? Or is um, there has to be something that will lead to affluence? But why do we take those jobs? For two reasons. The main reason was it was very good for the church life. We had the summer off. Brother Lee had a six-week training after a one-week conference. And he could have a spring conference and a winter conference. And we were able to support our families. So this is what um, I would comment about that. Now, there are three questions related to uh, handphones. And so they're slightly different, so let me try to summarize them. Okay, here's parent A and parent B. Parent A allows his child to play with the handphone in the meeting, eat a meal, and play with the handphone at the same time. But parent B has strict family rules about phone usage. Then as soon as the child brings a handphone out to play, this is in a meeting, it affects the meeting atmosphere. What do you do? If parent A is a saint in the Lord but won't accept the fellowship regarding the handphone, how do you maintain oneness in the body? Now, I am wondering, but I'm not asking for a verbal answer. How old are these children? To have a handphone. So here's where, uh, here comes maybe a different view. Uh, when my children were growing up, this, this is not a, an issue. They were too young. This is in the 60s and 70s. So I observed how my older son and his wife raised their children. They're now 13, 16, and 18. And uh, they're, they're part of this electronic generation really to be kind of normal, even to do your schoolwork, to communicate. You need access to a laptop. 
You may need some kind of tablet, an iPad or whatever. And at what age do they give them their own phone? It was 16. They had some use of their parents' phone before that. But if we're talking about a child, 8, 9, 10, 11, honestly, I would be quite strict that you don't have this, you use it as much as I allow you to, you use it when and where I allow you to. And when we're having a meal, you're going to turn it off. You don't turn it off, I take it away. Until you learn. Then I'll let you have it for half an hour. If you follow me, then you can have more use of it. And so I just don't know the age. And so this is would be quite new to me. If these are children, they have their own phone. Or even one says about, um, uh, you know, this is a gospel friend, and you have the gospel friend comes to the meeting with their child has a hand phone. Well, that's somewhat different. And there's another one about um, what uh, my own child likes to to use my handphone to play games, watch shows, and contact friends. It's my handphone. <laughs> it's my handphone. It's not yours. So these are the rules. Okay? And you are under loving parents, and you are under family government. This is my phone, and you're not getting your own until you, you learn how to use it. Now, and so I have to admit, I'm standing with uh, parent A. Is it parent A? No, parent. No, parent B, who has strict family rules. I feel that's much better for the child's development, depending on the age. And now, so two of my grandchildren, the two son- grandsons, they have their phones. And it it belonged to them. But I believe there's still some measure of observation. Because you're living in our home. You're living part of our family. We're providing for you. But next year, or later this year actually, the oldest one will go away to a university. He'll be on his own. As he should be. And now it's between you, your conscience, and God. How you do it. But then parent A uh, will not accept the fellowship regarding the handphone. Okay. In other words, somehow someone's been sharing that the way your child is using the handphone in this meeting is affecting others. And so this becomes a church matter. And if it's the case that they won't accept fellowship regarding the handphone, get ready for this. Two things. They love their child more than they love the Lord. 
and they care more for their child than for the church. This is the church. This is the house of God. This might be a Lord's table meeting or a prayer meeting. And just within recent years, so it's within the handphone, iPad, whatever you want to call it, I've observed how certain parents have their child, maybe it's 9, 10, 11, and the child can't enter into the meeting. They have them there. Or you can tell they're allowed to read this, this book, or allowed to engage in this, and they obey. And they're just quietly reading or quietly observing, and there's no distraction. And so if these ones would not accept the fellowship, then, then it needs to go to the leading brothers. Not that they're going to drag them into court and to accuse them of crimes. It's just, it's just beyond you. And so I don't know how you feel about that. But see, now they're in a situation when they're alone with this device, a few clicks, they can go anywhere. They can touch anything. I would be inclined if I'm a parent, and whether this is your computer or your iPad, I'm going to put in apps that keep you from doing certain things. You'll not be allowed to do them. You're not going to have this at your, at your age, 14, and do whatever you want because it's yours. You are under authority just as we are under authority. Then I have to be faithful. You're not going to govern me. And you can tell me, oh, all the other kids have this. First of all, they don't all do. But even if they all do, sorry, you are my son, you are my daughter, this is the rule in this house, you're not getting that kind of phone, period. And, and, but you can do this in a way that's firm, but in a way that's loving. But I believe within them, they will respect you. But if you never discipline them and limit them, on the one level, they may say, oh, I'm going to get my own way, I can manipulate them. But I believe deep within, they'll lose some respect for you. So I don't know how you feel about that. I got through it. I got through this response. Uh, Because it, and I'm not saying my son and his wife are the standard. I was just, I'm learning from them because I never did this. And I feel there's some merit. I feel quite peaceful. I'm a grandpa. I don't interfere. I don't say, you're my son. I'm, I'm your dad, so I'm going to direct you how to raise your children. No. I'm just a grandpa. We, we enjoy being with him. Now it's all your responsibility. The Lord, the Lord bless you. But I feel I'm quite encouraged and that in this matter, and this will relate to another question, uh, he and his wife are one. 
This is very important. Here's another question uh, related to this. We, bring, uh, we go into this next question. Between my husband and I, I am strict with regards to the way to bring up my children. My husband is lax. Okay? I believe the sister is accurate because the wives are almost always ex- accurate in discerning the situation in their marriage and in their family. It's quite humbling, men, brothers, husbands and dads, but it's a wise thing to listen, to listen to them. They can be rude, and my husband doesn't correct them. Whenever we talk about this, he agrees with being strict, but finds it hard to be strict. See? He's... I have to be, I'm just speaking in principle. I don't know who it is. I don't know if the people are here. There's something in his disposition. He doesn't like any kind of confrontation. Okay, that's, that's right, dear. That's right. Uh, we should be more strict. Uh, they're rude and I let them do it. And, and so now he's pleasing his wife. He doesn't want to have a confrontation with her. So he says something pleasing to her. And then now the kids turn around and do it, and they know their dad is a softy. Uh, if they do it with their mother, they're in trouble. And, uh, but they do it with their dad. He gives in. And we need to stand against certain aspects of our disposition in order to properly discipline and train our children. I'm not going to get into the matter of how you may discipline or punish them. But a loving father, under certain circumstances, knows he must discipline. I'm not going to get into the kinds. I'm going to stay away from that. And he knows he has to do it, but his heart aches that he has to be strong with his son. But if he's not, he's not being faithful either to God or to his own son. This is Hebrews 12. The father disciplines those whom he loves. And so how do I maintain oneness or harmony in front of the kids? Well, you can't. They're clear. They're clever. They can play one against the other. And so a proper situation would be if a child comes to dad and say, dad, can I do this or have this? And dad says, no, you will not do this. You will not have this. So then the child goes to mother. Doesn't tell her. I talked to dad. I'm trying to get a confirmation from you. Mom, can I do this? May I have this? Mother should say, did you ask dad about this? Yes. What did dad say? No. Now my answer is no. Even if you don't agree 
with your husband's no. Then when you're alone, you don't fight about it or argue about it, hopefully, but sometimes we argue. Then we repent and forgive each other and love each other more, but then, then you say, look, this wasn't a facade. I was one with you. Is this important for the children to see oneness between us? Now, dear, can we talk about this for the future? Because I think possibly in this case we could have done it differently. Then you talk about it. And then you agree again. I remember, this goes back more than 40 years, but I asked an older brother, we were having a meal together. He must have been 30 or 40 years older than I. And I just wanted to learn from him about raising our children. And the thing I remember the most, he said, it's the oneness between the parents. But if they know there's not oneness or harmony, then you can't pretend that there's oneness or harmony in this matter. And so you just may have to just assert your strictness. You're not doing this to attack your husband. You're just saying, now it's between you and me. And this is the answer. Okay? Okay, now where do we go? Okay, I hope to keep my children for homeschool until they turn seven, grade one. Will the weekly children community meeting be sufficient for their social aspects? Will you encourage homeschool in general? Uh, I, I never did homeschooling. What I've observed from the saints who homeschool to various levels, some all the way through high school. I read about some, two members of a family, they went from homeschool to Harvard. Or some homeschool up until 12 years old. And I just observed very productive, especially in a state like California. You send your children to a public school in California, and when they are in kindergarten or first grade, the teachers are required to tell them, you can either be a boy or a girl. It doesn't depend what kind of body you have. You can decide what gender you want to be, and you can be one way today, one way tomorrow. They have to teach this. I, I would never send a child into that kind of situation. Otherwise, if they did, I would say, okay, tell us what the teacher is required to speak to you, and then know the truth is from us. That is a lie. This is the truth. Now, don't go and argue with your teacher. She's required to say this, but if necessary, I'll talk to her or I'll talk to the principal saying, 
I know you're required to teach this. So I'm not going to fight with you saying don't teach this. I just want you to know I will contradict everything you say. So you did your job. And so uh, I, I, I don't think I can take a position to encourage homeschool in general. But I, I can just say again, I just have a positive awareness of it. Many, many saints in various parts of the world, various cities in the U.S., they just do this. Now that we have vacation with school, many parents, I feel, they're much more at peace to have their children in this healthy situation. But some families can't afford that. They can't afford the tuition. Now, will the weekly children community meeting be sufficient for their social aspects? I don't know. This would require an expert in child education. I can't go there. Since you're talking about them being five and six, I'm inclined to think so. They'll be okay. They have some good friends, and they have this community meeting. I think that will be okay. Okay, I am a mother of three. The oldest child is only five. Whoa, you, you got them condensed, huh? As much as I know that I should release my brother for the church life, I'm struggling at home by myself. And I feel the father should spend equal time with the children at home, especially in their toddler years. Is that too much to ask for? I think it's a little too much. (laughs) Because, at least this is my view, and I admit, it may really be old-fashioned from ancient times. But... Dads and mothers are both needed, but at certain stages, the mothers are able to bear more and do more and have more responsibility than the brothers, fathers do directly. So I'm kind of troubled by equal time, equal time, as if you clock it. And I don't know if you have three children, if you're at home with them all day long, or you're working and they're under child care, I mean, if you're home all day long, you need a break. I mean, you definitely need a break, even though your husband is weary from work. When he comes home, he has to realize my wife is worn out from the kids. And before you sit down in your... <clears throat> rocking chair and read the paper, you have to realize what's the need here. But I would hope you would get out of the equal time and move in the direction that you have the sense that your brother, that is your husband, is being normal and, and faithful and proper to do 
his responsibility. But for him to be more involved in the church than I am for this period of time, I think is really okay. This is a very severely limited time in your life. And uh, there's no time clock for a mother. Little children, they don't know you're trying to have morning revival. They're, They're crying for this and that, or they come in and they're in your bed and they want this or that. You end up having morning revival at 11.20 in the morning. Things like that. But it's when we try to make it equal that we're in a kind of framework of right and wrong, yes and no. And that isn't the way of life. But now, addressing it to the father, three children... And the oldest one is five. You need to sense the responsibility you bear at home. Uh, Not just to read a story for 10 minutes, to relieve her and to care for them. All right. At what age should parents start reading the Bible with the children as a routine? Well, I, I couldn't guess, I couldn't come up with an age like seven, five. But I remember when my children were, were little and there's the daughter was two years older than her first brother, six years older from the second brother. When they were all quite little from five to on up, their mother would read them before going to bed every night. So as soon as they can understand the language, it's, it's, I don't see anything too soon. You just read them according to their development and their capacity And uh, I think of Paul's word to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. You you knew the Holy Scriptures from the time you were young. And so to read them certain portions that they can just take in, they can understand the words. Sometimes they have questions. And then that's an opportunity to put something into them. Another one, how do we help the youth not to take the words in the Bible as knowledge when we encourage them to read the Bible? My kids are church kids, but I was saved when I was in university. I do worry sometimes that my kids will take the Bible and church life for granted as if they were brought into the church life by the parents, not by their own will. Well, um, church kids are kind of a unique species that <clears throat> when I the Lord led me into the recovery and made a decision though I was a theological education was going to be a minister in a denomination 
I realized that I must leave the whole system. And I've been studying the ministry of Brother Watchman Nee. Now I'm reading the book, The Normal Christian Church Life. I have the leading to drive out to California with my new wife. Touched the church, saw the vision, consecrated myself. Okay, this is kind of a dramatic way of coming in. And now the children are born into this. There's no way that they can have the same initial experience that their parents had. But they can really be under blessing so that eventually they can gradually begin to see what their parents saw. And that's one of the prayers I had for them. Lord, cause them to have the vision of your economy so that the recovery is their recovery. It's not a hand-me-down. It's my parents' recovery. Now I'm here. No, now it's mine. It's mine. They have to be in their upper teens or early 20s before this happens. But I wouldn't be too worried about the Bible as knowledge because all of us begin here. If you're reading Romans for the first time with someone 15 years old, don't expect them to be touching life in a deep way. They're full of life. The river's flowing. They're getting divine dispensing all day long. They see the body. No. We all begin by knowing what is there, knowing objectively what is in Romans. Then light needs to shine on the objective truth, the objective word, which is the truth. Then it becomes real to us. So we don't want them just to have mere knowledge. And then they think, oh yeah, nothing more. I know that. I know I have a spirit. I know we're tripartite. I heard about the mingled spirit. Yeah, yeah. Tell me something new. No, that, that's sad. But they need to know you have spirit, soul, and body. These are some verses. They need to have the proper knowledge. And then you lead them on to experience based upon this knowledge. Okay, I worry sometimes that my children will take the Bible and church life for granted. This is a healthy worry. So what should you do about a worry? There's a, an expression as part of a verse I love very much in 1 Peter chapter 5. And Peter says, cast all of your anxieties on God, for it matters to him concerning you. So you just tell him, Lord, I'm worried about my children, that they'll just take the Bible and the church life for granted. And some friend of theirs that was just worldly and got dynamically saved, they appreciate everything and 
my kids, eh. Then just pray, Lord, have mercy on them and care for them in a way that they would never take this for granted. I believe the Father will listen to you. Just say, this is your worry. Turn the worry into your request. Just say, Lord, these are not only my children, they're becoming your children through regeneration. Preserve them their whole life. Don't let them just take everything for granted. Okay. How do we take care for a youth with special character and encourage him to serve and blend with other youths? Okay, it's hard to know. I'm not criticizing what what special character means. So I'm taking this to mean something rather odd or unusual about the person that makes it awkward for him to be with others. It could be a her, but I've got to use one pronoun or the other. And even makes other young people not know how to be with that person. And what should we do about this? To encourage him to serve and blend with other youths. I don't think it would work too much if you just encourage him, just be part of this group. Maybe there could be a way for him to connect with one or two others on a much smaller scale just to learn to serve with others, to be with others, to mutually respect each other. But young people, they're young, to say the obvious. And they don't know how to handle a rather strange person or a peculiar person. Even if they are respectful, they don't know what to do. And they don't have the maturity in life. They can say we love everyone the same and we're willing to be related to anyone. That's beyond their capacity. So maybe there could be beginning on a small level of just how to serve. Blend is kind of advanced. Blending involves the cross, the spirit, ministering Christ for the body. That's pretty high. So let's replace blending with just connecting, to have a a positive relationship, to have a pleasant time together. How do we impart godly values into the young people so that they may make crucial decisions in the future? For example, jobs, marriage, etc., They won't make decisions based on worldly values such as looks, wealth, etc. Okay, we have to ask questions. Let's start with how. And I illustrate my response to this by pointing out we have a book, big book, entitled How to Meet. I was in that training when Brother Lee gave all those messages, How to Meet. 
And so you expect, when you read the book, you learn how to meet. But after you read everything, you have no idea how to meet. <laughs> but it's still called how to meet because there's no method that's how. But there are some principles that you can say that's how. And so um, we can impart into others only what is a reality in us, right? We cannot impart to someone that's not part of our being. And when it's part of our being, it, it can just flow into someone. If we're not lecturing them, we're not preaching at them, we're just sharing how you arrived at this and how precious this is to have uh, godly values. And you may want to consult Brother Watchman's message given near the end of his ministry on a change in values. Very enlightening. And to help them see the contrast between the values of the world and the values of God and how you came so this is in your being. And more than you realize, you will just impart this to them by your being. Your being, your person, will just communicate this to them. And then there will be times when you're able to share this matter of godly values. And then I'm glad when it comes to decisions. Now, in order for any one of us, we're talking about a young person making crucial decisions, whether they will do it according to their own preference or according to God, depends on whether or not they have a genuine consecration to the Lord. And we all need to be reminded and they need to be trained what we mean by consecration. Consecration is not you standing up and promise you will be this, you will do that. That's not consecration. That's a promise to do something that you may not be able to do. Consecration is realizing that you belong to God. He created you and he bought you with a price in redemption. But he wants to draw you to himself by love. And when you realize I am not my own, I am the Lord's, he redeemed me, yet he doesn't force me to do anything but he loves me and his love motivates me, then consecration is your willingness for the Lord to work in you, to work on you, and to work with you. And for the Lord to direct all of your steps. That's consecration. 
So if someone is not consecrated and has not been learning how to live a life of consecration day by day, then when it comes to making crucial decisions, other factors will dominate what what their friends are doing, what's the style, what's going on in the world, what others think they should do. But someone who's consecrated would say, Lord, I am living here for your will. I mean it when I said, I give myself to you to direct my steps. So I will not make any crucial decision without you. I want to make this decision in oneness with you with a sense of life and peace. Okay? You are this kind of person. This is how you've learned to make decisions. Maybe not from the beginning, but you're learning. And you can say honestly, I believe all of you. You can say honestly, this is how I live. When I had to make crucial decisions, sometimes life and death decisions, very serious decisions, life-changing decisions. Just to stop and say, Lord, I consecrate this matter to you. I consecrate myself to you in this matter. Your will be done. I'm not a robot. I have a will. You will not force me. But let me know what's in your heart. Let me know. Whatever you want, I want that. And so let's say when it comes to marriage, I would say to single brothers and sisters, or ask you, but don't answer outwardly, I just ask you, um, who do you think can do a better job of finding a spouse for you, God or you, really. Now, sometimes, maybe a little bit, I read a young sister's heart sometimes, and you may be afraid of wanting God to do this because the enemy might give you this thought, oh, The Lord wants to transform me. So he's going to make me marry an ugly, mean, strange, peculiar person for my transformation. I can tell you now in the Lord's presence, our God is not like this at all. Oh, how did... Adam respond when he saw the woman, Eve. Oh, wow. Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Read Song of Songs. God is not that way. Marriage is not an endless series of suffering for the sake of transformation. 
That's why I didn't invent this. I told them I don't believe in the three rings. What do you mean the three rings? Engagement ring, wedding ring, suffer ring. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Look with Rebecca and Isaac. I mean, you're not going to have that kind of courtship, but she got such an impression through the old servant, she said, yes, I'll marry him. Well, look, we're getting ready to marry the Lord. We've never seen him, but we know it's going to be wonderful. You need to realize that God's heart is full of love and concern for us. But his will often contradicts what we prefer. But if you would settle that, you will be blessed and you will be protected your whole life. How do we help young people who are very introverted and do not like to be in meetings with saints, including youth meetings with their peers? Well, this is not easy. It's not easy. I remember when I was about 20, my parents allowed me to have a lot of my friends, about 25 of them, over just for a gathering. And almost everyone was down in the basement. And I found two of them. They found some books that were in my little library. And they said, we just would rather be alone with a book. Well, this is not easy. But, again, maybe the way is to pray that the Lord would give a companion, a friend, that this introverted one can learn what it's like to have someone else that they can trust and they can enjoy being with. Many church kids of my generation are no longer in the church life because there was no shepherding or even teaching in two categories of practical matters. These are the two categories of shepherding I wish youths of my generation had. And this is what they are. One, the youth damaged by different teachings and turmoil. I'm not sure what that's referring to. The leading ones, whether full-timers, co-workers, or elders, instead of being patterns, turned out to be those that distracted people from the ministry of the age and from Christ and the church. Well, this happens sometimes. We we can't deny. Uh, In 1988, 1989, some of the leading co-workers turned away. We can't deny that it happened. But surely, I can say honestly, this is not a common pattern. I visit churches all over the earth, and this is not the usual situation. This is rare. How to inoculate young ones in this category of damaging problems. If they are now approaching being 20, you have to help them realize the church is not a perfect place. The genuine church, if you read 1 Corinthians, is like any family. 
there are problems. And the fact that there are problems here doesn't mean this is not the church. We're a big family. You read 1 Corinthians. They were divided into different groups. There was some came to the Lord's table meeting drunk. They had a love feast. The rich ones had gourmet food. The others didn't have much. Some got drunk. There was confusion in the meetings. But it's still the church. So as they're aging, they're nearing their young adulthood, they need to see the practical side. In matters of relationship with the opposite sex, the obvious evil part of this category is youthful lusts of various kinds. And it talks about some about marrying unbelievers and uh, you know, the young people having a boyfriend or a girlfriend in a denomination and going there. Okay. Well, we just have to make it clear that our view of developing our, our way is not of the world. I remember when my older son, who was turned out to be very popular at school, very pleasant fellow, and the girls really liked him. He's 14. One day he asked me, Dad, when can I start dating? I thought, what, at what age? I thought, what, what am I going to say? 37? Uh, 21? <laughs> so this is what I said. I think the Lord was with me. I said, uh, and I mentioned his name, it depends on whether or not you are living for the Lord. If you're living for the Lord, you probably will wait several years. If not, you'll probably start earlier. In other words, this is not something I can just give the date and say when you're 17 years and four months old, you can ask a girl out for ice cream. I just wanted him to make this decision with a realization and then I could also tell them, uh, before I was saved, and even after I was saved, you know, I had girlfriends, I dated, even went steady in a certain way. And when I look back upon those years of my life, there's much more regret than there are happy memories. I would say, just take it from your dad. It's not as pleasant as you think. And for a while, while they're under my roof, no, while you're in high school, you're not going to date. You're not going to. My daughter said, can I go to the prom? No. We'll do something special as a family. But then when they're young adults... It depends what's in them. And now with marrying uh, unbelievers or Gentiles, we have to be careful. 
there's a sister in her 20s, and she meets someone at work. That person is a very good man, treats her with respect. They love each other, and he's not saved. It's not going to be helpful for you to give her a sermon. You should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't marry this person. Well, if she's set on doing it, then you need to recognize this is her decision. Then you need to have a long-range view. If you insult her now and offend her now, she may never open to you for fellowship. Then you may want to turn around and pray, Lord, save this man dynamically. Or if they meet someone outside of the Lord's recovery, but a believer. Well, some sisters especially have done this. They met Christian men outside their recovery. And their relationship was proper in every way. But then the sisters made something clear. It's all or nothing if you marry me. What I mean is, I live for Christ and the church, and I attend meetings, and I have fellowship, and I serve, and I go to conferences, and I go to trainings. This is my life. You have to enter into all of this, not just because you're marrying me, but because you want to be a part of this. And then the Lord gained them. And they did this. They didn't say, okay, I'll be baptized and come to a meeting. Will you marry me? Then after that, he's gone. So we have to be careful when it comes to adults making decisions about their married life. Yeah, we have about seven minutes left. Okay. That's a new one. Both my husband and I are working and serving the young people. I was so tired as I need to work and serve and even take care of my kids. One hand, I praise the Lord that my husband, we serve together. But when back home, I have to do and take care of more household children matters. And he just said he wants to rest after working and serving. And he has the brothers need to focus more on serving. I'm exhausted and hence I have no personal time to contact the Lord. How can we balance in every aspect? Okay, there's another how. I would speak to the husband. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her. One of the big mistakes I made was insisting on going to a service meeting on a Thursday night when my wife, who was expecting our second child, pleaded with me, stay home. But I thought, no, I must seek the kingdom first, 
And if I don't go to the service meeting, I'm not doing that. And maybe 15 years later, she got over that offense. No, you can't just lie down and rest. Your wife is weary to the uttermost. She knows you need rest. You need to know she needs rest. And just seek the Lord together. And you may have to limit, to a certain extent, some church involvement. You're not, you're not bargaining. You're, you're not getting lukewarm. You just realize, I need to be home. Brotherly charge us co-workers. Strongly, I would even say he commanded us. You must reserve one night a week just to be home. And I'm not limiting it to one night. I'm saying you must do this. So that service needs, the responsibilities, they're never met. You have to know when to pause and say, I'm going away with my wife for a weekend. Or I need to spend every Thursday night helping her with the kids or letting her go out with some sisters to get some breath of fresh air and have some sister time. This will be pleasing to the Lord. My child is 11 and he read from the internet about gay couples and he felt sympathetic towards them. When the kids need to do research on homosexuality, the information on the internet portrays them as being wrong, misunderstood, abused by society. How do we educate children on this issue yet without discriminating against them? We just tell them the facts, especially in the United States. Uh, Same-sex marriages are legal. That's just the situation. The Supreme Court invented that. And so you're going to meet people like this, we just recognize they're there. And we tell our children there are people that feel this way, that relate to one another this way. And we just recognize this. We don't agree with it, but we're not going to condemn them. We just recognize them as persons. But here is the situation. Here is the truth. According to the word of God, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. And this is what you should follow. Well, we have just two minutes, and I just, um, there's just no way I can go through all these questions. I, I need to respect the time. Often these sessions, question and response, go around two and a half hours. But I don't think we can be here uh, until about 11 o'clock. Not a good idea. So let me just respond to one more. Okay. Our young people are not appreciative of the Lord's recovery. They think we are just another denomination, and they don't think there should be any distinction between us and a denomination. What can the serving ones do? What can the parents do? Well, this is what they think. Uh, I would suggest first to listen to them. Just what makes you think this? 
Where do you get this idea? You know what a denomination is? You know what it is? What's it because? Oh, I I like a girl who's who's a Baptist. And so I like to be there and have more fun with them. Then I would just tell them the truth. Whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, God is one. And he's a God of oneness. And he wants all the believers in a certain locality to practice this oneness. And because we want to practice oneness, we have only one name. That is the name of the Lord Jesus. The word denomination means you take on another name, like Presbyterian or Baptist or Wesleyan or whatever. And in the sight of God, they are divisions. Divisions are not of God, they are of the flesh. Okay, this is the truth in the Bible. Okay? This is the truth. And because this is the truth, we believe it. And because we believe it, we practice it. But when we meet as the church in Singapore, not taking any name because we meet in the Lord's name. We inwardly receive and recognize all believers in Singapore, wherever they are. They could be in any denomination, any independent group. They may not agree with us. They would not meet with us. We include them in our heart. We are here for the Lord and we're here for all the believers in Christ. But this is what is taught by Jesus himself. Then I might be quite, quite firm. Not too strong, but quite firm. It's a serious thing to disagree with the teaching of Jesus, the Son of God. He said, I will build my church. Then he said, tell it to the church. In the book of Revelation, he spoke to the church in seven different cities. This is the Lord's teaching. We dare not believe anything else. So you think about this. You may not want to stay here. You're free to go eventually. You're free to go. Even now you're 17 We'll, we'll, we'll stop requiring you to come to the Lord's table meeting as soon as you're 18. Right now we just ask you, come to one meeting a week. That's all. That's all. While you're here with us, please do this to honor us. When you're on your own, you make your own decisions. But remember, this is the truth. And sooner or later, you will learn this is the truth. This is why we practice this. Okay, in a sense, I'm sorry I couldn't respond to all the questions. But um, we just need to stay with the limits of time and honor the time limit set by the brothers. And so could we end just with a few of us offering some short prayers just to end in this way. And the Lord just cover my speaking, cover your hearing. 
and you just, whatever has been beneficial to you, is between now you and the Lord. Okay? Amen. Amen.